Computer, initialize Holosuite. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Feminist. Welcome to the next episode. Today I'm joined by a really special guest. She's my, I call her my sister in academia because uh, we have the same supervisor and um, our research topics are quite similar too. Not exactly the same, but uh, it's in a similar um, similar directions. So I'm really happy to have her here today. Her name is Courtney Tink and she did her master's dissertation on this very cool character called Lilith. Um, so I read her MA, her master's dissertation, and then today I would um, yeah, just like to discuss her research. So I hope everyone you really enjoy this episode and um, yeah, let me hand over to Courtney. Um, Courtney, so you decided to write about Lilith, um, and when I read your your dissertation, I was just like, wow, I never knew she had such ancient origins and that she's been around for so long. So can you uh, elaborate on why you chose to write about Lilith? Because that's quite a, um, you know, to spend two years of your life writing about one thing is quite a lot of dedication. So why choose her? And um, can you give some background on the character and her origins or not really the character, the archetype of Lilith? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, definitely my sister in academia. And I always appreciate Janine. She's like my big sister because she's much smarter than me and um, is doing her PhD and is just incredible in general. Um, so Lilith, I came across Lilith during um, True Blood, the series, and uh, she was a very strange character. She was uh, covered from head to toe in blood, and she was just, just this very um, ambiguous but strong kind of character, and she played a very uh, large role in the series without having to be present often. And then as um, she kind of, I became aware of her, all of a sudden uh, she was everywhere. I found her in popular culture, I found her in art, I found her in history books, I found her in games. Uh, and I feel like that's kind of the magic of Lilith because she's been everywhere always. <laughs> and until you kind of open your eyes, uh, you've never heard of her. I know some people that have never heard of her until I forced them to sit across from me at a table and listen for hours about her. But um, I think that was the main reason that I decided to continue my masters on this figure, this figure that was so ambiguous and unknown, but at the same time existed throughout history, throughout culture, throughout art. Um, we'll get into a bit of her origin. And uh, it's so surprising because she's in well-known um, art uh, pieces and um, literature. So I think that's probably the main reason why I got into Lilith and why I continued with Lilith, because uh, she was just a fascinating, um, almost enduring figure that flew under the radar and still flies under the radar today. I must say, um, so um, sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. Uh, while I read your um, the, the part where you talk about the origins of Lilith and where she came from, I was also like, oh my goodness, she's literally everywhere. And um, not a lot of people know about her. Actually, the, the first place I knew about her, that's why when um, you told me you're doing your thing on Lilith, I was like, oh my goodness, because I've heard of Lilith. And actually, this was in... Um, I used to be a heavy metal fan and um, there was this band called Cradle of Filth and they did a whole album 
um, on Lilith. It was called Dark Darkly Venus Aversa. And uh, there was this one song on the album that I really liked. It was called Lilith Immaculate. And they did this like entire album focused on this character. So um, when I read your the origins of Lilith, um, I was so shocked because I didn't know that she goes so far back. Um, yeah, so yeah, okay, go back to you. <laughs> you were gonna talk about the origins. But that's so true. I felt the exact same way. I just thought that she was this really cool um, post-feminist character that was in film and series. I mean, she always is depicted as this badass um, and she's always, you know, very um, beautiful, but still strong and she has a lot of power. And I really liked her as a figure just without having any context. And then the deeper I went into research, I mean, the first time I typed into Google Scholar Lilith, it came up with many, many, many results. And I was like, oh, Oh, so we all know Lilith then. Cool. Um, and I remember going through this one website and it was so long and it was just, it was didn't even go into depth. It was just, these are where she is found in history. Um, and even with my masters, I had to slice it down a lot because she's, honestly, you could pick a religion, you could pick a culture, you could pick a country and there's Lilith somewhere in there. Um, so I think the first time she was ever um, known as Lilith, there have been like little things in between. Um, she was like, part of a group of wind spirits um, in Mesopotamian culture. But I think the first actual depiction of Lilith was in ancient Sumerian uh, times. It was uh, in a text, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which uh, took place, I think around 2000 BCE. Um, and uh, Lilith was this lowly kind of just demon creature. And the whole story was there was this goddess um, Inanna and she built, uh, she wanted to build a throne and she found this beautiful tree and she waited 10 years and she cultivated it. And when it came time to make her throne, she found out that a dragon had made its nest at the bottom and the zoo bird had made its nest at the top and Lilith was living in the tree itself. So Gilgamesh being epic as he is, <laughs> uh, he slayed the dragon and that caused the zoo bird and her um, offspring to fly away and for Lilith to flee to the desert. And that's very um, interesting because it ties together with a couple other origins of Lilith. Because once you start kind of digging into Lilith, uh, a lot of her stories that um, kind of intertwine are interesting because they don't necessarily have cultural ties together. So um, this was in Sumerian times. And then this was the first real um, depiction of a character called Lilith. Then we had um, the Babylonian Talmudic relief. Um, so these were, I think, let me check my notes to not lie to because <laughs> I don't want to do that. Um, but they were turning the page um, from the 1800 to seven, uh, so yeah, 1750 BCE. Um, and basically, it was this relief that depicted uh, it's like a statue in a, a relief. Sorry, you can cut that out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, sorry, but um, basically, uh, in this relief, it was the first visual representation of Lilith. And she's depicted as this, uh, again, very female, um, sensual kind of figure. She's got big hips. It indicates fertility, which was very nice back in the day. Um, <laughs> Good thing to have. <laughs> fertile hips. Um, and she had these clawed feet and she had wings. Um, and these anthropomorphic features are so interesting because they already start to depict this storyline of uh, a supernatural or... Um, kind of ambiguous definition for Lilith. But she was also depicted with um, a 
I think it was a hook and um, we have it here as well. It was, sorry, um, a ring and um, rod. And the ring and rod basically signified that she was um, at an elevated presence. However, because she was depicted with owls and lions and lions are predators and owls kind of signify the night that also cements her otherness. And this depiction was very important because a lot of the iconographical um, elements that we take when depicting or defining Lilith, we actually take from this relief. For example, Maleficent um, in 2014, she's got her horns and she's um, got wings and she actually has a lot of um, anthropomorphic features that mirror this um, depiction of Lilith. So um, it's very yeah, what I, sorry, I'm going to interrupt you again. What I found interesting about um, your discussion on where Lilith appears, um, not as Lilith herself, but some of these characteristics of her, like the anthropomorphic features, actually are mimicked in lots of other supernatural characters, like um, Maleficent. And I think you also mentioned the three witches from American horror story, Coven, Coven, Covenant, Covenant. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I was actually, I wanted to ask you, you know, can you maybe say that, was she like the first ever witch, like the archetype from, from which all the representations of witches are taken, taken from? Um, although I guess it's only like 2000 BC that, that she started to feature, but for me, I guess the fact that she's really, and I think this links to her other origin which is the biblical one you know that she was um adam's first wife and um so it, it she's part of that whole creation myth so for me i was thinking as i read that especially the biblical or the the jewish christian account of her um i was thinking you know could we say that she was like the original feminist and also the original witch from which all these other ones that we see today are kind of drawing from. I don't know what you think about that. I love that idea. Um, I really, really love that idea because I do think that she um, has a lot of concepts surrounding her, you know, defying um, really patriarchal structures. And when you take down, you know, when you take witchcraft apart um, and specifically the stigma attached to it in contemporary depictions, it's always, um, I mean, I, I did my masters on Sabrina and that's a good example. They follow um, the dark Lord or the devil. And it's this idea of completely, um, you know, refuting God and choosing darkness and um, earth magic and things like that. And I think Lilith would have been, um, if not the first, at least one of the, uh, seminal masterminds behind the depiction that continues because I do think that she um I feel like she's a blueprint for a lot of different archetypes I think you could argue she's a blueprint for the first feminist well one of I don't want to say the um dangerous words in academia <laughs> yeah it can't say something is or it is and it's always it might be <laughs> yeah according to <laughs> but I think one could maybe think possibly that she could a blueprint for the first feminist. Um, I know Michelle Oshro, she argues that quite um, prominently in her readings. Uh, she also, I think, could be considered one of the first blueprints for the femme fatale because uh, she is this dangerous, sexy vixen who is out there to destroy men. Um, so, and that that is a continuous uh, image that comes up again and again and again with Lilith. And I do think she could be seen as one of the archetypes of the witch, the figure itself. Mm. So, what I, 
What I find so interesting about her is this um, continuous um, link with her and nature. Um, it's interesting that her original, um, like the first account of her was that she was kind of what's like part of a tree. And um, also the whole idea that she can turn into an owl and that she has claws. And um, in feminism, there's this uh, like big debate about women and nature, you know, equating women with nature is problematic because of the binaries of nature, culture, um, yeah, nature and civilization. Um, but uh, interestingly, it seems like the fact that she's paired with nature or always um, goes back to this type of natural relationship with the earth is part of what makes her empowering. I don't know um, what you think about yeah. that. Um, I think, so my favorite thing about Lilith is that she takes concepts that should be problematic and gives them a new kind of meaning. Um, so with nature, uh, there is a painting by um, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, Lady Lilith. Um, it's from, I think, 1866 to 68, if I'm correct. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> but, uh, but he was part of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. And um, what was so fascinating about it is he paints this, this figure, Lady Lilith, and she's got golden, beautiful, like auburn hair. Um, and she is in this weird liminal painting because you've got fixtures that are um, meant to be in a house, like a lamp and an end table. But then when you look at the reflection in the, uh, the mirror, um, she's in a forest and she's surrounded by all of these very poisonous flowers. And I think that's the magic of Lilith because, um, yes, she may be part of nature, but she still emulates strength and power. So, um, yes, she may be uh, the almost uh, typical lady in nature but she's also a very terrifying owl with vicious claws or um she has the power to outfly you know the original patriarchal man himself adam <laughs> um so i think that's what's so interesting about her and i do think her tie to nature is never seen as a negative aspect but rather a strength yeah i also i also i also got that uh, feeling and then another um, interesting thing about her, I was, I, I guess I'm always interested in this. I don't know why. Um, the, the idea of Lilith as a mother, um, I think it's so interesting that she's not allowed to have biological children because she's cursed by God, I think. Um, and, but she, she has like hundreds of demon children. Um, and it's, again, motherhood and feminism, it's an old debate, you know, does motherhood um subjugate women is it motherhood that oppresses women and i've kind of argued that um maybe biological motherhood might in terms uh if it's done in, in the nuclear family structure but what's so interesting about lilith is that there's no nuclear family um and she doesn't have biological children but she has these demon children so i don't know if uh what do you think what's your take on that i thought that was so interesting so let me also just quickly say the biblical um, origin of Lilith for those who have are very lost but should know about Lilith by now. Um, but basically Lilith was the first wife of Adam and she was made at the exact same time as Adam from the exact same clay as Adam. Um, and she was number one. And uh, basically Adam tried to dominate her. Uh, the subtext is sexually. And she was like, no, thanks, we are equal. And he was very arrogant about it. And he kept saying to her, we're not equal. And she said, we're made at the exact same time, exact same place we are. Um, and eventually she got tired of him and she uttered the tetragrammation, which is God's ineffable name. 
um, and she flew away from Eden. And the big debate around that is, did she have the capacity to fly from the beginning? Or in uttering God's um, true name, did she gain this almost abject ability of flight, uh, thus beginning her anthropomorphic journey? Uh, and Adam was very upset about this and also could not catch her as he could not fly. Um, and God eventually made Eve from Adam's rib. And that is why there is a discrepancy in Genesis, because I think it's in Genesis 1.27 or 1.22. Um, God discussed, it's discussed how God made man and woman at the same time. He makes them at the same time. Um, it's written much better than I'm explaining it. And then I think it is, I have it here um, in, sorry, oh, 2.18. Um, then there's a whole long passage about how God puts Adam to sleep after he's named everything. And um, he takes Adam's rib and he makes Eve. And there has been a debate for a very long time as to why there are two women created at very different times in the Bible. And it's thought, apparently, as we say, that Lilith was the first. Um, so with, to re readdress your uh, question of the um, mother, I think it goes back to the abject which um, Barbara Creed kind of describes as uh, something that is close to recognizable, but also very strange and uh, kind of gives you the creeps. <laughs> um, the best way I think of it is, is uh, when you have a glass of milk and it gets a really gross skin on it. <laughs> and you can drink it, it's fine, it won't kill you, but it really freaks me out. And um, that like delves very nicely into, you know, Julia Kristeva's uh, Powers of Horror essay and um, her arguments on the abject and I think the biggest form of abjection would be motherhood because uh, women can create life and men cannot and um, with our fantastic patriarchal structures in place when women can do something that man can't it doesn't make her better it makes her other um, so I think again it redirects back to the idea that Lilith takes these concepts that should be very problematic and she kind of flips them on her head and not only is she um, the strange kind of maternal figure because she creates like over a hundred demon babies a day. Um, when she, when God tries to kind of make her return to Eden, she makes a deal and she says, well, kill a hundred of my demon babies every day. I don't mind. I just want freedom. So now you've got this weird demon mother who's also like, I don't mind. Kill my babies. I don't care. I'm not a great mother. I want freedom. So it's very, I think, um, it again, throws all the structures on its head. It takes like almost like a little bit of a archaic abject motherhood approach where she's like the creator of all and the end of all because she's very happy to sacrifice her children. Um, but yeah, it's, she's a very interesting maternal figure, even in the series, um, so spoilers, sorry, sorry, but uh, in the series, um, Sabrina, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, in the fourth season, she has a child and she kills it. And you think it's a joke. You think it's like her trying to protect her son. And she does do it in a way to protect her son so he doesn't get raised by like the devil. But um, she kills her child. Like this entire series is building up to this weird, like maybe she could be maternal and she just kills it. Yeah. And then goes on and she becomes the leader of hell. So it's not even like she has these hectic repercussions for it. That's interesting. She, um, yeah, like you say, she she's this like super mother because she gives birth to a hundred like babies a day but then she's also the anti-mother doesn't care um i found it quite interesting um in the uh somewhere you said you talk about this um now i lost my train of thought oh my goodness uh, right, I, talk <laughs> I told myself remember what you were going to ask and then i i literally just forgot it um 
okay it will come back to me yeah it will come back to me um oh yes that was it okay i got it um so um i think somewhere you said that lilith I, I don't know if it, I can't remember if it was when you were talking about the Femme Fatale or about Lilith, but she kind of encapsulates all men's fears about women. It seems like she's just this product of what men fear the most about women, which is the fact that, you know, women can give birth. That is terrifying. And even more terrifying is if they don't care about their babies. <laughs> so she's like this, like, gives birth a lot and then doesn't care about her babies at all. Um, that seems to be like the scariest thing ever. <laughs> and um, the fact that she, um, yeah, tried to be equal to Adam, um, I think that's also a, a big fear. Um, and I think you talked about this with the Femme Fatale too. She really embodies all the fears about masculinity and that she might not really be um, a feminist, but rather just the product of men's fear about women, uh, which happens to be some sort of a feminist. Um, I don't know what you think about that. I think a lot of our feminists, uh, feminists today were never intended to be feminists. I think the people that we emulate and um, see as role models were intended initially as warnings or uh, problematic ladies. Um, you know, when the femme fatale took place or the, the character started uh, forming in the Victorian era, um, you had these women who were at home and they were in their nice little corsets and um, were really considered just like very attractive chairs that men own. Um, and had these sexy vixens who um, really defied men. And I think they were, I think the femme fatale and Lilith kind of go hand in hand in a lot of ways, because I think they both come up um, for a similar reason. And I think they always have an adverse effect because you have this femme fatale that is supposed to be this warning sign, like don't be like this person. Um, and yet in the Victorian era, um, books about the femme fatale were read predominantly by women and were very popular. Um, you know, with Lilith, you have this figure that is supposed to be um, dark and evil and doesn't like her children, and that's supposed to be problematic qualities. Um, and today, we, I think, overlook that um, in favor for autonomy and freedom. So I think, I think she's very cool in the sense that I don't, I think you're right, I don't think she started off um, as an intended feminist, but I think she kind of got there along the way while enduring throughout history. Yeah, and it's quite interesting that um, the femme fatale, like you described, um, in the Victorian era, and I think even the 1940s and 50s, uh, at the end, she's kind of punished for being for her empowerment. Um, but then later, the femme fatale, she's not punished, but she kind of gets away with it. And I'm thinking about Lilith too. Um, obviously, she's punished, you know, in the original creation myth, um, the one with Adam. Uh, she's punished by God for defying Adam and defying God. Um, but then we see in Sabrina too, and I'm not sure, I haven't actually watched The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and I'm not exactly sure how it ends, but it seems like she's also not punished for that, but she becomes the queen of hell. Am I right? Yes, you are. She um, she ends up taking the devil's powers. He's like the most feared character throughout the entire series. Everyone is terrified of him from the get go. Um, and in the end, she finds this like ancient sword and she siphons his powers because he takes hers from her at some point uh, when she kills his son. There we go. I remember that. <laughs> and 
and she how it ends so i know that sabrina was cancelled so i don't i think that maybe was not the intended ending but i think that's one we're left with and i love it because um i was so worried that she was going to have this dramatic fall and undo all of my research and instead, <laughs> like i was going to be happy if she just kind of stayed as she was like this cool powerful doing her own thing demoness witch and she became not only the queen of hell but she kind of destroyed her competitors and she literally danced with the devil and won <laughs> So um, I think even with the femme fatale, even with the modern day femme fatale or contemporary femme fatale that is kind of coming through when you think of like Gone Girl, um, you have these terrifyingly brilliant women who are getting away with it. Um, they are not seeing any punishment. Uh, sometimes the, no one else knows about how evil they are except for the audience and like one character as in Gone Girl. Everyone thinks this poor woman came home and her husband's a little bit like, oh. Um, so I think, I really enjoy how we are um, almost encouraging this uh, model or this uh, figure that can have power and can remain female um, without all these unnecessary consequences or punishments that come with power. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm, I'm wondering, what is your take on, on her sexualization? Um, like you mentioned, uh, she starts off, the Lilith in Sabrina, she starts off as the really nerdy school teacher, and then the school teacher gets eaten by Lilith, <laughs> or killed by Lilith, and then Lilith takes over the, the school teacher's body, and then you said it so nicely, you said she gets a post-feminist makeover, <laughs> and suddenly we see her wearing these really low halter tops, and... Um, you see she's much more sexualized and suddenly she wears makeup. Um, do you think that aspect of her, because I've argued um, in terms of Laura Croft that her sexualization is problematic. And like you also pointed out, most of these series are written by men and directed by men like Laura Croft too. So I'm wondering what's your take on her sexualization? Do you think that that empowers Lilith or, um, or it doesn't? I think post-feminism is always a red flag, regardless of how you look at it. Um, <laughs> I'm glad we agree on that. <laughs> it, is, it is a very problematic movement in terms of um, it tries to overlook a lot of uh, issues that need to be dealt with, and it tries to prettify everything and make it um, you know, consumerable, and then kind of argues that now we're feminists, we did it, we bought the purse and we're wearing the lipstick. Um, and I think that it did derive, obviously, from third wave feminism, which was necessary um, and very important. But I do think it kind of went on its own tangents and got a little bit confused along the way. Um, I think the thing that um, I find with Lilith is I think with her, her beauty, it's almost so intertwined with her um, identity that if you were to separate it, I think you wouldn't almost recognize the figure itself. I mean, she's always known as this... Um, unearthly beautiful woman with long hair and um I do think there are drawbacks to that I do think that she um that's the reason she was able to become this uh warning to women throughout history because she did emulate these qualities that weren't really seen as um well at first they were seen as prostitute because she had like a lot of makeup on and then it became this almost like rah 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 girl power model um, which still had problematic undertones because it was the idea that you only got attention or power when you looked a certain way. Um, and I know we are moving very much away from post-feminism, but I do still think that Lilith has um, some relevance in her post-feminist kind of makeup. Um, there's a wonderful article, I think it's written by Nunley or 
Gitter. I don't know 100%, but it's a, a game back to Lady Lilith by um, Rossetti. And uh, basically the argument is, is that um, the figure is so uninterested in the male gaze that she almost refutes it. So in her immense beauty, she isn't there to be looked at. It's not Laura Mulvey's um, male gaze in that sense. And she is still going to be looked at, but she's almost um, insulting to men because she's so enamored with her own vision that she kind of surpasses the male gaze and in a weird way challenges it because it doesn't mean anything to her. And I feel like um, Lilith's beauty encapsulates a little bit of that still. I think she's maintained this beauty throughout her in, um, invention itself, let's say. Um, so I do think there are definite drawbacks to answer your question in a very long way. Um, but I also think that there is some value in her beauty. And I do think that um, a lot of the time, I think it's almost like a return to the fact that she was a warning that now stands as a role model, maybe if that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I was I was also thinking because beauty seems something that, yeah, from the very beginning, this is one of her defining characteristics. So taking that away might then make her something else and not Lilith, but maybe something different. And um, I guess that was my my big question um, for you. Um, and this is, I quote from what you wrote, you said, owing to her character as both liminal and ambiguous, Lilith has become an archetype for the changing roles of women. And, um, and you can really see that the way the femme fatale changes, and then the way that Lilith also changes. But then I was thinking, because um, I've argued that we are definitely moving away from this post-feminist um, idea of femininity and idea of what empowerment is, because these days we see heroines that are much less sexualized and that aren't so um, so obsessed with beauty and um, especially the, the idea of entitled femininity, you know, being able to buy your own uh, beauty or buy into this um, this idea of what it means to be beautiful uh, as a Western woman in the 21st century. Um, so I was thinking, do you think we would ever see the same type of evolution of Lilith as we see in Laura Croft from this whole post-feminist ideal to a character that is much more um, androgynous, much less feminine, um, considering the fact that be beauty is such an important part of Lilith? Um, do you think that, that we will see her change as well? I think if we were to see her change, it would not be in an, andro um, an androgynous move. I think she would, um, so I, and I, this is just me, myself and I, so it can be refuted entirely, but I see a move towards um, the female grotesque taking place. You know, this mass, I mean, I think the Corella DeVille film that's coming out is going to be a very nice marker for that. It's the idea of, you know, insanity for the sake of insanity. Like, I don't think you can uh, make a woman who skins puppies a nice, happy lady. Um, so I, I look forward to that film. And I think if Lilith were to make a move that was less sexualized, I think it would be towards almost like the pantomime hysteria of the female grotesque and the freedom that does come with that almost in a liminal kind of manner. Um, I don't think she would ever have an androgynous face due to the fact that um, we're here now in 2021 and she's existed for many, many, many years and we still haven't seen um, a version of her that is mildly androgynous or even really um, different. You know, we've never seen a blonde Lilith or a short Lilith or a, um, a Lilith uh, of color, you know, we've always just kind of seen this 
um, westernized white, let's be honest, uh, Lilith with long black hair or red hair who is very much sexualized in very tight clothing continuously. Um, so I unfortunately don't think she'll make a move towards um, this post-post-feminist stage we're going through, but I do think she'll still have value um, as she does have radical undertones and she does have um, different aspects about her that are very, uh, I want to say like uh, freeing, but yes, I don't think she will be like our beloved Lara Croft, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, it's really interesting that you mention her hair color. And I find this fascinating. Why black hair and red hair? And why is her hair always long? Um, there's this, of course, this long history of feminism and hair or femininity and hair. Um, we see, for example, in Aliens, the tougher Ripley becomes, the shorter her hair goes. Um, and we see that for Captain Janeway, too, and Sarah Connor even as well. Um, many heroines, um, you know, hair is such a defining characteristic for women. So I was wondering what you think, what is the significance of not only her long hair, but the hair color? Um, what does that mean for her? And why is it so, I mean, it's amazing that for 6,000 years, or I don't know how many thousand years, she's always had black hair or red hair. I mean, that's got to be something. I agree entirely. I think one of the biggest things is Lilith is essentially the binary um, to Eve. You know, Eve is, I mean, in some arguments, Eve is also a temptress and a femme fatale. And I think that's fantastic because I love how we ha then have a different kind of binary taking place within a trope. But um, Eve is depicted as this sweet little milkmaid blonde who is there to help her husband, Adam. Um, and I think in direct contrast, you have this very um, abject, uh, kind of creaturey, very, very pale skin, very dark hair um, that counters this image. And I think um, initially that was created as this warning to don't be like this, be like this. And I think it just continued thereafter. But I think what is interesting is her hair is always long. Um, Elizabeth Gitter makes this argument where she says, uh, if a woman is good or depicted as good, her hair has an aura about it and it's golden and glistening and glowing. And if a woman is evil, then her hair becomes this like glittering snare. And um, uh, Rossetti, who painted Lady Lilith, I know I keep going back to him, but he was quite seminal in just the arguments of uh, Lady Lilith, I mean of Lilith in general, sorry. Uh, he wrote a poem that accompanied his artwork and it was um, basically around Lilith's hair and how it, you know, strangled men <laughs> and ensnared them. And I think her hair is almost as much her identity as Lilith is. You know, you see this figure, as you mentioned, um, sometimes we don't just see Lilith as Lilith. Sometimes we see iconographical images surrounding Lilith. And the long hair is definitely one aspect of that. So I think it almost started off as um, don't have this kind of unkempt long hair that you can't, you know, tie up and hide and be shameful of. And then I think it just went from there into this like dangerous kind of snare as it's described many times. It's interesting. Um, I, I'm just thinking of Medusa as you're talking about Lilith, you know, uh, the hair made of snakes and then the hair that uh, when you look at it, um, you know, men freeze. And then um, I saw recently that even Medusa, you know, people are saying, you know, she's actually a feminist um, character. Medusa is a feminist too. Um, and they're all of these kind of monster women <laughs> that, um, that, that scare men and that kind of embodies all, all of uh, men's fears, um, which I think is just really fascinating. Um, 
yeah no the hair um the hair is really interesting i just lost my train of thought again <laughs> as i was thinking about what else i wanted to ask you about her um the other day i read something about medusa that said um everyone thought that her hair was a curse because um, obviously, you know, it was given to her by Athena after she was, I think, was uh, raped by Poseidon. And then uh, Medusa threw herself on the stairs of Athena's temple and, you know, asked for help. And then Athena gave her this like snake power. And for many years, she was seen as a um, curse, it was seen as a problem. But if you flipped it, never, ever, ever again would a man be able to hurt Medusa. So she like contained this power to not only um, ignore the male gaze directly in a physical metaphor, but um, she had the ability to kind of completely destroy it. And I think that that's actually a very um, beautiful kind of turn on a character that I think was wronged for a very long time. And I like how we're refiguring all of these characters that really just got a bad rip, let's just say. I, I, it's, it's amazing. Um, I'm thinking about Maleficent too, you know, a character that's been hated for so long and suddenly they give her this reboot and we see that actually, um, Maleficent is not evil because she's just a bad person or she's just a witch and she's just an older woman that that hates babies but she's actually bad because of patriarchy because this guy betrayed her and that that is what makes her bad and I'm so interested to see what they're going to do with Cruella you know um, I find it fascinating that now we are seeing these stories of female villains and they are they are placing the the focus on their stories and their origins and they're not only um you know focusing on them but they're also giving them these stories that are much more nuanced and that are much more um sympathetic like the medusa narrative too it's much more sympathetic towards women and um I think that's really fascinating and profound and I think it's really important and I think it shows the current state of feminism too. Um, I, 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 I was really, I, I was really moved by the Maleficent movie. I, I really loved it because, you know, such a, such a, a, a wronged character is finally given the redemption. Um, yeah, it's, it's really great. I did my honors on Maleficent. So obviously it means I can never watch the movie again because I watched it so many times. But I never do anything on academia that you love. But, um, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. but I, um, I think the biggest thing for me was when you go back to Maleficent's um, original story where it's just witches, uh, every time her anger is so unjustified. I mean, one of the times she curses the baby because she didn't get like a party favor at the banquet. And it's so ridiculous, like this, almost um continuation of a uh, hysteria that they try and embed in like the woman the female narrative or woman's narrative and um i really loved that you had this figure that also was unapologetically a villain to an extent um you know she is an anti-hero but at the same time i did like that we we got a proper backstory because with a lot of male villains you have sympathy and you understand but you still respect them as a villain like they're still a problematic figure and i like how we're not trying to rescue every single villain and make them like this lovely kind person i think i like that we have the space where women can be evil with a justified means it's not just like yeah. i'm you know crazy today because it's a tuesday um and i really hope that Corella deville is going to have a similar kind of um air about it and even more so like a she's she's a villain and i'm really hoping that we play on that in a in a few ways because i do think that there's a lot of potential in that because i think Cruella is um first of all she's like one of the famous uh female grotesque figures out there 
And she's also just, I think, such an interesting character to unpick. So I'm really looking forward to that film. Yeah, um, it's amazing. Uh, you also mentioned in your dissertation that uh, even the Lilith in The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, she starts off as a villain and then she also becomes more a type of anti-hero. Um, can you elaborate on like how that process takes place? Because I think this fits in with what we're currently seeing in popular culture. There's definitely a move towards female anti-heroes instead of just women being pure evil because they're women. <laughs> and um, I know this, this trope of the evil woman is usually older women, uh, women in their 40s. Um, they're, they're portrayed as these really evil women with no motivation. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, what does it mean for, for Lilith to now become this sort of anti-hero and not just this pure villain of all the uh, narratives? In the series, um, she's honestly just a fantastic character. And she was just uh, everyone fell in love with her. I mean, she was never like, I'm the good guy now, rah-rah team. Um, and a lot of the time she was kind of just <laughs> going with her motives, but um, there were many different moments. So initially she starts off as this kind of like foot soldier for the Dark Lord, um, casually saying Dark Lord on a podcast. But anyway. <laughs> the Dark Lord. <laughs> Voldemort, <laughs> the devil. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, she basically starts off as this very meek and a bit pathetic foot soldier and she's her whole goal is to um, get Sabrina to sign away her name to the devil uh, and then as it goes she begins to kind of question the power structures in place and she kind of starts so she was promised that she'd be uh, the dark lord's right hand man and you know his queen of hell um, and as she keeps going she begins to kind of question why is she doing this with no reward uh, she starts to kind of back against the patriarchal systems in place. Um, and while that is taking place, the series itself has got a lot of um, wonderful opportunities for feminist kind of uh, arguments to take place. So uh, the character, Mary Wardwell, the teacher that she takes on, um, this Lilith character almost has like a dual feminist, um, I wanna say transformation taking place. Cause while she's kind of uh, questioning and starting to back against the dark Lord, um, there's a very misogynistic, um, awful pr principle in place. And then she eventually eats him. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but she literally, um, you know, fights with him a lot as well. And then uh, when we get to about season two, she becomes quite a prominent character there. And she bounces between helping and completely trying to destroy. But even when she does that, um, she does all of this hard work and you understand why, because it's from pain or misery or revenge. It's all justified. It's not like one day she's like, let's go and kill the family. Um, and it's always undone before any damage is takes place. So it's never like um, a permanent problematic kind of uh, train of thought. Um, and at the end of everything, she helps the Sabrina team a lot. And she also um, really just kind of questions any kind of male patriarchal figure that takes place or stands before her throughout the rest of the series. So it's a wonderful transformation. Also, it's really amazing that we also see women helping other women, you know. Um, usually women are always like pitted against each other, you know, um, in the original Maleficent story too, you have the pretty young princess who's pitted against Maleficent, but now at the end, the true love's first kiss is actually Maleficent's maternal kiss um, for the princess, and like, as you say, um, now Lilith helps team Sabrina, um, 
And I, I saw this in, in a few, unfortunately, in the second Maleficent movie, I, I didn't like it that much because once again, they're putting two powerful women against each other. Um, but I, I really like this idea that finally we start to see women working together too. And um, I think this is an age old trope, like two beautiful women are like, they can't be friends. And I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, it's just ridiculous. And um and um, obviously, I've been doing more research on Star Trek, but there's this Star Trek character too, Emperor Giorgio. So she's from the Mirror Universe. And then she literally, I quote, she says, I am extremely wicked, even for a Terran. Uh, so the Terran are like, the Terrans are like the bad, the bad version of all the, it's a, it's a parallel universe. <laughs> They're like the bad version of us, everyone in the normal universe. So she's like, I'm the worst of the worst. But at the end of the day, she also turns out to be like the biggest good guy um, in the series. And she also works together with other female characters and she actually helps them. Um, so I think that's really fascinating. And I think it's really good to see. And I think after the Cruella movie, we should talk again. Um, I think we'll have a lot to discuss. I'm really curious to see what they're going to do with, with Cruella, if they're going to give her the Maleficent treatment or uh, give her some motivation for how evil she is. I think they might. I also think so. And I think I, I from what I can see, I think uh, Cruella may also be addressing almost the taboo mental illness kind of, um, you know, discussion that people don't really like to uh, bring into Disney films <laughs> or really any kind of film with heroes and things like that. Um, so I am very excited for that. But I do agree that I think um, I love, I think, I love seeing a villain have a redemption arc more than I enjoy seeing a hero kind of just evolve a little bit more these days. Yeah. Um, and Lilith even has a moment in the series where they do this play and the play is very similar to the alphabet of Ben Sira, um, the, the religious origin story. Um, and it's questioned. I mean, Sabrina even says like, why would she go through all of this? And um, the dark, she, the uh, Lilith um, heals the dark Lord's wounds and promises to be his foot soldier if he promises to make her queen. And um, throughout the series, this is questioned and it's unpacked by the characters. And I love that because it wasn't there for us to unpack. They also were like, why would you do this? And Lilith even says, she's like, promises were made and that's all I knew at the time. Um, and I love the idea of having a character that has problematic qualities that then has the capacity to evolve beyond them. Because I think all of us have opinions and all of us have ideas that need tweaking and evolution. And I like that we're seeing it in series as well in film. I also, um, you also mentioned one part, uh, one quote that that um, uh, Lilith said. She said, "This is all I know." You know, um, I I can't remember what that was about, but I think it was also Sabrina asking her, you know, why 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 are you like this, or why why do you keep helping the Dark Lord? Um, and she says, "It's just it's all I know. This is what I know." And I think that really says a lot about. Uh, internalized patriarchy too you know sometimes it's it's all we know <laughs> and it's so so difficult to move beyond that um, but when we see that actually happening it's really hopeful and really um, great to see um, I saw that in the I love the the Giorgio the emperor character in Star Trek because she also she's all she's known as violence and then when she's finally shown a different way of life um, embodied by the Federation then she changes. And I think that's really hopeful. Um, I think many of these arcs are quite hopeful. And um, I think Lilith's transformation too, um, 
because it reveals the changing roles of women. And I, I feel like the future for women is quite hopeful. Maybe I'm naive in saying that, but uh, just when I look at these characters, I kind of feel like that might be something. <laughs> I agree. I feel like sometimes as feminists, it feels like you're screaming against a brick wall. Um, and then you see these little things and these little changes and you hear little conversations around you and you see these characters who have hope and potential. And then it does feel like, yeah, I'm screaming, but maybe the bricks, maybe just maybe they're starting to move a little bit. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing. And I do, I mean, I, I love Lilith. So I'm always a bit biased because I think she's such a fantastic and interesting figure um, as you do with your Lara. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think we choose these women because that they are, uh, so strong and unapologetic and interesting um and i think they they came about in a time where we didn't have a lot of strong and unapologetic and interesting women and i really love how they're among many comrades now as opposed to being the few standing up i mean there are problems with lilith uh, she's supernatural which always you know insists like it kind of insinuates that um to be the strong powerful woman you have to have an otherness about you and there are many problematic factors but the fact that we are moving towards something is promising yeah no definitely about Laura Croft too and Emperor Giorgio I think there will always be things that are problematic or that could potentially be problematic um, and like you say I was also told by our beloved supervisor that I think Laura is the bee's knees I quote and um, and that time I was like what no I don't but then I actually do so so we definitely have our biases and uh, definitely there are things that are problematic but I, I, I choose or I like to look or I like to to prefer to to focus on the positive aspects of them what the potential they have yeah yeah they are reclaimed from patriarchal uh, systems they are going to come with a bit of baggage and a bit of dirt to dust off I but, agree, um, yeah. yeah I also got if it helps but um Lilith is, is not real please stop referring to her like she is <laughs> yeah um, I got that <laughs> yeah she might have mentioned something like that to me too um about captain janeway <laughs> yeah because I, I i went through a phase where i was like this person exists and you know they don't but uh, i think they become so real to us and i think that's the power of popular culture you know these characters have the ability to move beyond the screen and they actually become real people for us even if it's just in our imagination and it's really great to have these types of um, really empowering characters to look up to um, yeah or maybe uh, maybe not empowering characters but for us they are uh, or for us there's always something that we see in them that we feel like oh I I really that really talks to me and I feel like if that empowers you then then that's good or that makes you feel empowered it's good especially once you are recognizing the limitations but i i do agree and i think lilith still has a lot of potential she's going uh there's a film coming out i think it's in a couple i don't even know when it is i don't know why i made it sound like i know the date um but it's borderlands it's bo it's based on a video game and um she's a protagonist in it and i'm really looking forward to seeing that um seeing her not um i mean i don't know I, she could be an awful protagonist she could be a protagonist turned villain i don't know anything about the game but um, it was promising. And uh, Kate Blanchett is playing her, and Kate Blanchett played Hilla in, um, I know, right? I love <laughs> Kate Blanchett. She's like my, oh my goodness, I think the most beautiful woman in the world, literally. <laughs> I agree. She's just, oh, she's, everything she does is amazing and just professional, but also still whimsical. She's just, she's incredible. She's incredible. So I was so excited. 
that. I was like, yay, she's looking after Lilith well. Because obviously Lilith is a person and I'm a speaker of her as such. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kate Blanchett better not kill your, uh, your beloved Lilith. <laughs> yeah, I'm also excited for that movie. I played the video game a little bit, um, not a lot. So I actually also don't know too much about Lilith, but I'm sure Kate Blanchett will, will do her justice. I know she would. And it's interesting because Kate Blanchett is blonde. I wonder if they're going to change her hair color. In the game, she has red hair, like all the other Liliths ever. So she, they might do that. But yeah. Um, do you have uh, any other comments that you wanted to make about Lilith? Or um, I think... It's just that um, whoever is listening to this, um, you will now see Lilith everywhere. She will be in everything. Um, she'll be in music and films and probably board games. I don't know, I haven't found one yet, but I'm sure she's somewhere. And, you know, history and culture. And I think that um, there are so many other female enduring characters like that. And I think we all need to keep an eye out for them and to bring them to the surface. And I think that's just what Lilith taught me. Yeah, it's amazing, yeah. Courtney thank you so much um this was so insightful and I got a few ideas of like oh I should write a paper on this or <laughs> we should write a paper together on this so um I'm I'm gonna invite you again after the Cruella film comes out if you would be willing um I think you are the perfect person to discuss that film with and um thank you so much for your insights um yeah, this was really great. I really learned a lot and I'm sure everyone really enjoyed this episode and hearing from a professional um, Lilith scholar or someone who's the expert on Lilith. Um, thank you so much for your time. Um, yeah, this was really great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and just um, creating a space like this and just thank you for being you. Janine is always amazing. Thank you, Janine. And I look forward to on Corella. This show is brought to you by Holosuite Media. Computer, list other available Holosuite Media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Expanse, an enterprise podcast. Trip's able to get that taken care of in, in a couple hours, because I think he had also had to realign the, the warp coils a little bit to, to get it to, to work. Back on the uh, the Bird of Prey, Soong tells him that he's going to take them to, to the Briar Patch. I'm not even going to attempt to call it or, you know, pronounce it in its original Klingon <laughs> at this point. Uh, um, lazy, lazy. Well, you Lacking know. Lacking commitment. <laughs> <laughs> Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Random Trek Review, a Star Trek Review Podcast. We get kind of that funny little bit where he's got the relationship book and I guess maybe they're foreshadowing a little bit of, you know, future... You know, hunk Odo. <laughs> the, the, like, romance book was hilarious. He had a funny line. I forget what it was exactly now. I didn't write it down. I only read three chapters. Oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, was, that was pretty good. And they definitely do this. When they have kind of a heavy, deep episode, they'll sometimes put a little bit of a joke or, or something light off the top. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.